0: Burden is to try and get across to people why the Midwest lost its centrality to American culture.
1: That's John Laup, a Midwestern historian and the author, most recently, of a book called From Warm Center to Ragged Edge The Erosion of Midwestern Literary and Historical Regionalism. Today we hear from John about the literary history of the Midwest. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. John Lauk's recent book, From Warm Center to Ragged Edge, gets its title from a line in the first chapter of The Great Gatsby. Nick Carraway, the narrator, is a Midwesterner who's decided to go east to New York to learn the bond business. He's just returned to America from World War I and notes that, quote, "...instead of being the warm center of the world, the Middle West now seemed like the ragged edge of the universe." That's an attitude plenty of Midwesterners seem to take to the region of their birth. At least, that's one perspective about the Midwest we often encounter in American fiction and literary criticism. John Lauk's book examines this trope, one might call it a cliché, as does Marilyn Robinson, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Gleed, who says that Lauck's book, quote, "...exposes the origins of this extraordinarily potent cliché." Robinson liked the book, so did other Midwesterners such as Tom Brokaw, who writes that his own prairie roots, quote, have served me well in the intellectual and concrete canyons of the eastern seaboard, and it is good to be reminded why. Today we hear from John Lauck about his work and about the, excuse me, and about the revival of Midwestern literary and cultural history. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. John Lauck, thanks so much for coming on the podcast again and talking with me. Thanks, Joe.
0: Always a pleasure to join you.
1: So you have a book coming out. It's called From Warm Center to Ragged Edge, The Erosion of Midwestern Literary and Historical Regionalism. The title of your book, as you mentioned earlier, comes from a line from The Great Gatsby by that great Midwesterner, F. Scott Fitzgerald. I have my copy here, so I'll read the line. Uh, It's on the third page. Narrator Nick Carraway describes coming back to his Midwestern home after fighting in World War I, and he's restless. Uh, he says, quote, Instead of being the warm center of the world, the Middle West now seemed like the ragged edge of the universe, so I decided to go east and learn the Bond business, end quote. In a way, your book projects Carraway's changed attitude toward the Midwest onto a similar shift in attitude throughout the country, but particularly on the coasts. What story do you, t- do you tell in your book? Uh, how, when, and why did the Midwest move from the warm center to the ragged edge of our cultural imagination?
0: Well, Nick Carraway was a Minnesotan and uh, he grew up in Minnesotan and had a rather pleasant life, mostly around St. Paul. Um, and then he was pulled into uh, the great tumult of World War I, spent a lot of time in Europe, Had a lot of adventures, and uh, when he was thinking about going back to Minnesota after the war, uh, he thought that might be kind of a bad decision. That might be a boring decision. He might be bored back in Minnesota. It'd be dull. And so, um, like a lot of people uh, after the war, remember this is uh, World War One was the origin of this famous song. Uh, How are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen old Paris? Mm. And, uh, you know, this is a similar dynamic to a lot of veterans who spent a year or two abroad uh, fighting across France, being trained in the other uh, parts of the country. Um, They uh, felt a little uprooted. They felt a little restless. Uh, This was the beginning of a new culture of of jazz and dancing and flappers, et cetera. So this is the theme that Fitzgerald is uh, linking into. So Caraway goes off to New York, and uh, most of us know the story of the great Gatsby and what he sees. He's not too impressed by in the end, and he sees a lot of the shallowness and the materialism um, of that culture. And uh, he is, in the end, drawn back, to the Midwest, and uh, there's a um, scene in the Great Gatsby where he returns back to Minnesota and he's passing through these little towns in Wisconsin in his train as uh, the lights of these little towns go by, and he begins to think that uh, maybe maybe the Midwest wasn't so bad. But in this book, what I'm trying to do is explain uh, the various social and cultural dynamics that led lots of people, uh, especially intellectuals, to think less and less of the Midwest, Uh, very much like that scene in Gatsby where Carraway uh, begins to think that uh, maybe uh, there are greener pastures on the coasts. And so the book is designed to try and give people a glimpse into the forces that reduce the prominence of the Midwest. I mean, the Midwest was considered by many um, the ascendant region uh, at the turn of the century, around 1900 or so. It was the dominant region economically. It was the region that was producing all the presidents in the country. It had a booming economy with uh, industrial places like Detroit, of course, in Michigan. Uh, You're from Michigan, Joe, and and particularly, you're from Lansing. So you know about the impact of General Motors and other car manufacturers on Lansing mm. and Michigan generally. Well, this was the glory days. This is when uh, the economy was uh, doing very strong. And in, in more recent years, we just think of of uh, the Midwest in terms of the rust belt and declining industrial cities. But uh, this was the era when the region was booming. And I, in the book, um my burden is to try and get across to people why the midwest lost its centrality to american culture.
1: Mm. So as we've been describing or discussing your book is a history of the midwest and coastal responses to it but i mean it is also in large part a literary history of that of that story and that tension. So who are some of the writers in addition to fitzgerald who are some of the writers and cultural figures you focus on and what was their significance? Well, the
0: literary angle is um, is very interesting because I used to teach these classes in uh, these survey classes in the history of the United States, and usually they were organized um, from 1877 to the present, or 1920 to the present, or something like that. And when I would teach those courses, I would do a little aside about what historians and um, literary critics used to call the revolt from the village. Mm. And this would be maybe a 10-minute aside during my lecture, and I would say, you know, there was this period of time in the 1920s when these major writers uh, began to rebel against life in the Midwest and critique it and, and, and undermine the region and uh, pull back the curtain as they saw it on all the bad things happening there and that was a very superficial description of that literary movement and um, a few years ago i i thought you know I, I need to dig in a little more deeply into this whole question of the revolt from the village as it was called and uh, to give away the punchline right up front uh, my conclusion about this is that the revolt from the village idea is completely wrong hmm. And we should not be describing what happened in the 1920s with, th- with these few writers in that way, because it's completely incorrect. But I can see, as a matter of intellectual history, as a matter of path dependence, as the economists call it, how this interpretation kind of took root and uh, became kind of the standard interpretation. But if you go back and look uh, at the origins of that And it began with an article in The Nation uh, by Carl Van Doren in 1921, uh, which, you know, he dashed off quickly, as you do when you're putting lots of uh, magazine issues together and working fast. Uh, He wrote this essay, The Revolt from the Village, and he, you know, he sprinkled in several writers, um, including people like Sinclair Lewis and Sherwood Anderson Anne Fitzgerald and Edgar Lee Masters. Um, but what I discovered was that that is a very narrow reading, incorrect reading of what uh, these writers were trying to do. And what I found, and this, this is really what clinched it for me uh, when I was trying to make sense of this whole thing. I found some old interviews that I don't think were published until the 1960s, but didn't get any attention then from these writers, uh, Masters, Sherwin Anderson, and Sinclair Lewis, where they all said, this revolt from the village idea is complete uh, baloney. We never revolted from the village. That was never our intent. And then they go go on at length about how much they love their hometowns of Clyde, Ohio, and Sauk Center, Minnesota, and Central Illinois for Edgar Lee Masters. I mean, Edgar Lee Masters is a great example of this. You're in literature, Joe. You have run across the Spoon River Anthology, and you kind of know the thumbnail of what it's supposed to stand for. Uh, Well, that's not how Masters thought. He thought it was a much more ambivalent treatment. And more importantly, I think, is that no one talks about Edgar Lee Masters after Spoon River Anthology, but the rest of his career, he was writing things about the Midwest that were – uh, very benevolent and very kindly, and he wrote a, a great book about the Sangamon River Valley where he grew up in central uh, Illinois. And and he pushed back very hard against this notion that he revolted from the village. So uh, one of the things I wanted to do in this book was just um, expose that theory or that interpretation. Uh, and all of its flaws, because it has operated for too long as this barrier to further inquiry into Midwestern literature and Midwestern thought. Uh, People just cast it aside saying, oh, well, these, these guys proved that the Midwest was backward and retrograde. We really don't need to go any further. This has already been done.
1: So I, I have a number of questions about what you just said, and particu- particularly this sort of misreading of Midwestern writers. I kind of want to dig into this question by going over some of the reviews or endorsements of your book, because they do, I think, in fact, say something pretty interesting and important about your project and its significance to rewriting this history. Uh, so Marilyn Robinson, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of *Gilead*, has this to say about your book, quote, John Lauck documents the response of major Eastern critics of the period to this extraordinary cultural flowering that it was all an attack on the barrenness of the culture of the Midwest. The consensus that formed around their view of this vast region persists to the detriment of American history as a whole. John Lauck has done valuable work in exposing the origins of an extraordinarily potent cliche, end quote. So you've been talking about just how potent this cliche is. could you talk a bit about, well, I suppose the Eastern critics themselves, as Robinson referred to them, um, were there any East Coast critics in particular, in addition to the one you mentioned in The Nation, who could be labeled as as sort of culprits in, um, in recycling this myth?
0: Well, H.L. Uh, Mencken, of course, uh, was the great voice of the intellectuals in the 1920s. Um, he became seen as kind of strange and kind of a crank by the late 1930s. But in the 1920s, he was seen as the trendsetter, as the pace setter, as the person who was pulling back the curtain on all these um, all these um, uh, myths that defined American history. And so a lot of writers and Eastern critics looked to him, and, of course, he had a very dim view of the interior of the country. Uh, Van Wick Brooks also was very uh, active in this era, and he helped set the stage for and refine and develop the revolt from the village theory, And, and he pushed it hard. The interesting thing about Van Wick Brooks is that uh, by the 1940s, he had completely flipped around, and I found some old uh, quotations from him late in his life that no one really talks about. I mean, all they do, if they pay any attention to Van Wyck Brooks at all, he, he's seen as this cultural rebel in the teens and 20s. But in the 1940s, he had a complete change of heart, and he comes around and says, I didn't know what I was talking about in the 19, teens and 20s. That was just a superficial rendering of actual events. So... That, I think, was another big revelation for me uh, that, you know, he, he saw and he took on some blame uh, for the development of this revolt from the village idea. Uh, also, the other thing that I I would emphasize is that it became more and more apparent to writers that if they wanted to get ahead, they needed to go to New York. They needed to move to New York, develop connections in the publishing world and um, and sell their books to New York publishers. And so that had a tendency to kind of warp their writing toward the tastes of Eastern publishers and agents and marketing people. And so there's a there's a number of stories of people who were from the Midwest, interested in writing about the Midwest, but they didn't see any great future there in terms of being a writer and selling their work, so they moved east. Um, Sinclair Lewis is a very good example of this. I can remember some letters that he would exchange with Frederick Manfred, a regionalist writer in Iowa, Minnesota area, and he kept uh, commanding Manfred, "Uh, you need to get out of Minnesota. You have to come to New York. You have to get a serious agent, and you have to get serious publishers or your stuff is not going to get much attention. Mm. Now, Manfred uh, was kind of the exception. He was very stubborn, and re- he refused to do it. And he said, my roots are here. This is what I know. This is where I want to stay. And I think it definitely hurt his career. Um, but that that exchange with Lewis, I think, makes the point very well. And Lewis, uh, if anything was extremely good at marketing and getting his work out there. And he knew how to um, exploit scandal or what was considered scandal at the time. And that was one of the marketing geniuses of his book, mm. Main Street, is that he could make it seem like a tell-all, a scandalous tell-all, which helped him sell a lot of books. But when I read, when I reread Main Street a few years ago as part of this book, I was surprised how critical Lewis was of of the people in the novel who were critical of Main Street, who were critical of uh, Gopher Prairie, uh, especially Carol Kennicott. I mean, he is fairly brutal to her uh, for all of her impatience and all of her criticisms of that little town in Minnesota, which whenever I read this, 20 years ago didn't kind of leap out to me because I guess I probably had my mind made up when I went into reading it. Oh, Main Street is an expose. That's what I should be reading it for. But on a second reading, I, um, I thought differently about Main Street and this was bolstered by the additional reading I did of, of um, Lewis in which he said in his private papers and in his letters, um, I was not attacking Center, Minnesota. I was not attacking the Midwest. I love the Midwest. It's a great place, and I'm glad I came from there. My dad was a great person in this little town and a great leader, and I don't want to be mixed up with this revolt from the village idea. Mm. So that's um, the, there's just various steps along the way that started to convince me that we really needed to rethink this revolt from the village idea. Also, I think that. Um, you mentioned Marilyn Robinson. I think that she mentioned too, and I don't know if this makes the blurb on the back of the book or not, but she mentioned some of these other prominent writers of this era, yes, yeah. um, like Booth Tarkington and uh, and and others who are totally forgotten, but were major figures at the time, household figures, um, you know, and so. I think uh, the second chapter of my book for people who are particularly interested in this is an attempt to revive interest in those forgotten writers and to give people a little bit more balance in terms of uh, what other writers, uh, the non-rebels, quote unquote, were saying during this era and hopefully give them a roadmap to revisiting these writers if they're interested in it.
1: So another line that I like about your book um, was sort of advanced by the historian John Mack Farrager, who says that your book is, quote, an impassioned argument for the importance of local attachments in a global age. So last time we talked uh, for the podcast, we discussed some of the ways in which local attachments still have significance, even if we live in a global or, a, say, transnational age. And we, we went over this even before the 2016 election, which in many ways we saw this this the the persistence of this truth sort of play out uh, politically. So, in what manner do you think your book does what Ferger says it does? That is, in what in what way do you think it it advances an argument for the importance of local attachments or for not forgetting the importance or not overlooking the importance of these attachments?
0: Well, I think this all speaks to the question of. Identity and uh, identity is on everyone's minds these days. Um, I, there was an essay in the New York Times magazine, I don't know six months ago or so in which which was entitled The Year We Obsessed over Identity and uh so much of our cultural criticism and commentary focuses around the formation of identity and and what is it, and mm-hmm. how solid is it and uh, how malleable is it? And I just think that in this discussion, we often lose track of one of the most critical and essential components of identity, and that is where a person is from. What, what mm-hmm. locality did they grow up in? And how did that shape them? You know, it's become very common in the academy to have these discussions about uh, race, class, and gender, for example. Very important categories of analysis obviously have, a, uh, have an impact on how a person's ed- identity is formed. But also, uh, it's critical to understand where a person comes from. I mean, it makes a big difference if you uh, grow up in Lansing like you did, Joe, uh, versus uh, growing up in uh, Watts, L.A., mm-hmm. or growing up in Miami or some other place. And uh, that has that determines the shape of your life, it determines the path of your life, it determines how you see the world. And so what I was trying to do and what I what I did did hopefully accomplish in the book, and this is what Johnny Farragher is referring to, is I try to connect some of these characters, these writers, these intellectuals to the places they come from and you know, make a big um, try to elaborate on what it means that Sherwood Anderson comes from Clyde, Ohio, or that um, Sinclair Lewis comes from Sauk center, Minnesota, um, or that some of these historians, chapter three is all about historians and people like Frederick Jackson Turner of Portage, Wisconsin. I mean, the fact that Frederick Jackson Turner was from Portage, Wisconsin had a enormous impact on his life and his thinking and um, i think that um i think that we've lost this or we don't put enough emphasis on this particular category of analysis in the academy these days It's not totally ignored um but i think it's mostly it, it doesn't get much attention as it relates to the midwest certainly um vis-a-vis other regions so That's what Johnny Farragher is referring to. I think one of the reasons, too, that Johnny Farragher is uh, drawn to this book is that um, we started talking several years ago, and he told me, you know, my dad grew up in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. He grew up on a farm by Watertown, and he told me all these stories about South Dakota. And so that's how we got connected about this. And that kind of makes the point, uh, the importance of place and how it shaped a person um, Johnny Farragher's dad is a good example of this, uh, how important that place and that time was to who he became and, and what he passed down to his son, Johnny Farragher, who has had a major impact on, the, um, on Western history and American history in general and, and uh, has taught at Yale for many, many years and uh, was recently president of the Western History Association. So all of that matters in the long run
1: so Tom, Tom Brokaw's quotation about your book I think also touches on this point so I'll, I'll, I'll throw this one this final quotation at you and I'd like to make um, just a, a few things of it uh, so Brokaw writes quote my own prairie roots have served me well in the intellectual and concrete canyons of the eastern seaboard and it is good to be reminded why so I, I have a couple questions about this first Brokaw seems to be suggesting that one of the things your book does is, is, is show how being from the Midwest, as you're talking about, can in fact provide you a kind of unique intellectual foundation. In other words, there's a tradition to draw from and one that could be held in a, I suppose, in a sort of counter distinction to a coastal Intellectual Foundation. If you can guess, what do you think Brokaw has in mind when he refers to the intellectual value of his prairie roots, which he says your book reminds him of?
0: Well, I've heard uh, Brokaw talk about a number of times the importance of his uh, youth and his development uh, in South Dakota and how much it meant to him. And um, he, he has talked about this in a couple of his biographies. And he's talked about how this had this formative influence on what he was going to do with his life and what he was going to dedicate himself to. In fact, this morning when I was driving, I had Morning Joe on, and Tom Brokaw was one of the guests. And he was talking about helping to launch the new uh, School of Public Service at Arizona State University. Because in his view, you know, the place he grew up in, uh, there used to be a lot of people that were uh, just – organically or automatically inclined toward uh, civic service and being involved in their community and helping with whatever was going on in the community and maybe running for the city commission or, or whatever. And he thinks there's um, he thinks that sentiment is declining these days Hmm. and that there's too much self-absorption and narcissism and not focus on the polity and the common wheel and the common good. And so that's why he got involved in that project. So uh, I think that's kind of what he's referring to. And I think he is in this mode of thought right now where he wants to give back and he wants to think about his country more and uh, get it on a, um, you know, get it back on a stronger basis. And I think he started to realize later in life how strong and uh, helpful um, and encouraging uh, this culture was that he emerged out of, and he's afraid of it fading away, and, you know, what is replacing it? I remember him saying a few times, you know, I I ride the train, and everyone um, has their face buried in an iPhone and their headphones on, and they don't really pay attention to what's going on around them, and uh, this level of self-absorption is not conducive to small-D democratic politics. And, um, you know, I I am very sympathetic to that. He He's right. You know, we need people to think a little bit more about um, the world around them. And I think regionalism is a good way to do that because... If you're a regionalist, if you know about your region, you know about your place, you know about your town, you know about its history, then you're much more inclined to care about it and want to take steps to preserve it and uh, make it strong and make it a better place. But if you're totally disconnected from it, if you're just existing in the cyber world, if you don't feel like you have any connections to a place or any roots – then you're much less likely to care about um, promoting that place and making it better. So there's a direct connection here, and I think that's probably where Brokaw's coming from.
1: So your book traces, as we've been talking about, a sort of cultural change in attitude toward the Midwest uh, and the creation of this sort of myth of, um, of, of the revolt um, against the Midwest. Uh, your previous book, The Lost Region, trace a similar change in the academy, particularly in the historiography of the Midwest, your book showed in pretty stark terms how there really isn't an institutional apparatus anymore for the study of the Midwest, though there certainly are such apparatuses for other regions, like the South or the West or New England. You've been working a lot, uh, helping to sort of organize conferences, edit books, uh, run a journal to help create this apparatus for the Midwest. Can you catch us up, since we talked last year, about how this project is going in general? Are there new books in the works, new conferences coming up?
0: Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, So in 2013, as you mentioned, um, the University of Iowa Press published my book, The Lost Region Toward a Revival of Midwestern History which uh, I make the case that the old field of Midwestern history in the academy had totally collapsed. I mean, it used to be kind of a going concern. uh, But in the years after World War II, and the decades after World War II, it fell on hard times and it's largely ceased to exist. Um, So we uh, have been working the last uh, several years to try and breathe some life into this corpse and uh, give uh, the field, uh, create a, a, uh, an arena, a platform for people to come to and talk about Midwestern history and write about the Midwest. I can remember back many years ago when some of us would be complaining about this situation in the hotel bar at various conferences and people thinking, you know, I was thinking about writing an article about X, Y, Z on the Midwest, but I don't know where I would publish it. I don't know where I would send the article. Um, and so in recent years, we've got a couple of journals going that focus on the Midwest, um, including middle West review, uh, published out of, uh, university of Nebraska press. And we have started with the, uh, help of this of the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University having an annual Midwestern History Conference and we are in our third year so on June 7th we will all convene in Grand Rapids Michigan uh, at the Howenstein Center and they will host us they're magnificent hosts and have been you know crucial to this whole revival and uh, it's free conference so anybody can come uh, so graduate students, if you're listening, you don't have to pay the $150 entrance fee that you do at a lot of conferences, which is, which is rough when you're a struggling mm-hmm. graduate student. So in addition to that, we have uh, been organizing some volumes of uh, Midwestern history. Um, and Joe, uh, you know that uh, we are both editors of a couple of volumes that are in the works, um, one of which I should mention Um, the proposal deadline has not passed for July 1st is the deadline for proposals for our new book of essays about the intellectual history of the Midwest, Uh, something that I know we both find extremely interesting. Uh, We are both um, interested in the revival of another field of American history, and that's intellectual history, which had. Also fallen into decline in recent decades, but has uh, a new group has formed and they are having a conference every year now. And so this was a very interesting merger of two uh, fields that are being revived um, by Midwesterners who are involved involved in both uh, in both revivals. So um, please, uh, if you're listening and you are interested, uh, Google. Uh, call for papers for mapping Midwestern minds. That's going to be the new book, and I think we've gotten some interesting proposals in already. I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be a great book, and I think it's a very good sign of the continuing interest in the Midwest uh, and and this revival and wanting to contribute to it.
1: You know, you bring up the um, the conference, um, the Hauenst- the conference that the Howenstein Center is hosting um, that's coming up pretty soon. Uh, One thing um, that I'm really excited about in that conference is uh, Eric McDuffie's talk about um, Malcolm X's mother, who, of course, lived in Lansing, Michigan, and and throughout the Midwest for a number of years, and the work she did uh, as a kind of activist that was sort of overlooked even in Manning Marable's book about Malcolm X that just came out in 2012, I believe. Um, Last time we talked, and indeed, you made this point um, earlier in this conversation um, you, you discussed a bit about how the study of the Midwest can and should sort of supplement or collaborate with work on other questions of identity. Um, uh, you, you brought up in our last conversation, you brought up um, race and the question of, of race and the way that um, is, is very much an important part of the current conversation about identity. Um, you just wrote about Richard Wright, um, author of Native Son, whose work you argue, quote, burns with a regional consciousness. Um, And yet your take on his, and the importance of region in his work is sort of ambivalent. So could you talk about that? What was um, Richard Wright's relationship with questions of regionalism and the Midwest in particular?
0: Well, first of all, I'm I'm very excited too that McDuffie is coming to our uh, conference. That's going to be wonderful. And I would also point out to our listeners that your host today, Joe Hogan, has an essay coming out, Uh, could be in days in the spring issue of middle west review about malcolm x's time in lansing michigan and um his his history and his connections to lansing michigan and that was based on a couple of books that have come out in recent years and so joe you put together a very uh interesting um and um um, incisive uh, review essay about all so. those books connecting Malcolm X to um, Michigan, Lansing in particular, but to the Midwest generally. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all cover Malcolm X in our American history surveys, but no one really points out the fact uh, that he has deep roots in Omaha mm-hmm. and Lansing, Michigan. Uh, that's kind of interesting. And, you know, what does that mean? I mean, I guess that's the Basis of your question is how do these categories of analysis merge at times, like race and region? Um, one thing I would do is point people to this uh, very smart historian at uh, University of Kansas, Clarence Lang, has written about civil rights and race relations in the post-World War II decades, and comparing the issue of race relations in the North and the South. And he is worried that too many people conflate the two. And he said there are obvious and major distinctions between the regions. And unless we understand regionalism, uh, we are not going to see uh, those kinds of distinctions. And I'm also reminded of a of an essay we, we published in the journal Studies in Midwestern History uh, by Phil Obermiller, which um very interestingly studied the development of human relations commissions. Mm. Now that's a very vague term, but this is the term for the institution that was created in major cities to deal with race relations and to make them better and to promote peace among the races. And uh, according to Phil, these emerged in the 1940s in the Midwest in places like Cincinnati You know, they didn't, they did not develop in places like Birmingham. Um, This was kind of a Midwestern phenomenon. So I think that kind of speaks to some interesting um, dynamics uh, and distinctions between the regions. Uh, But you asked about Richard Wright. So I uh, wanted to add to this book and to other projects I'm working on. the, the story of race, race in the Midwest, and some of that made it into this book. Uh, some of it's being placed in other, other, other books, or or is part of other ongoing projects. But I got into the whole story of Richard Wright, and one of the things that really leaped out uh, when I was working on this was how much Richard Wright emphasized. Uh, the distinction between Mississippi where he was born and raised and Chicago and how much he felt liberated when he got to Chicago and how there was this major section African-American section of the city where there were African-American entrepreneurs and business owners and professors and doctors and a whole middle class and uh he, it's interesting if you read his work, how um, how he struggles for a few months to deal with all the freedom he has in Chicago, and how he's used to kind of looking out of the corner of his eye and over his shoulder, uh, because he came from this uh, horrendous uh, system of racial segregation in Mississippi. I remember, too, he was working as a as a, a maybe a dishwasher or something at a uh, restaurant in Chicago, and he brushed up against a white woman, and this white woman came over to him and uh, asked him to tie on her apron as, uh, as she was running to wait tables or work in the uh, restaurant, and he was totally stunned by the whole episode, and he was he just kind of kind of froze. He didn't know what to do. Because he thought, you know, if if you did anything like this in Mississippi, you wouldn't be alive long. Hmm. And so his work uh, and his reflections on Chicago are really interesting uh, in terms of um, him trying to navigate this new racial system or the absence of a racial system. Now, I don't want to make it sound... Uh, to Rosie, of course, there was there were major problems in Chicago, and you know there was an obvious effort to steer African Americans to a couple neighborhoods, the West Side and the South Side, etc. But it was a world apart from uh, Mississippi, and this this is the point that Clarence Lang makes in his research. Now, Richard Wright is not remembered for the emphasis he placed on the transition from Mississippi to Chicago, Richard Wright moves on to New York and Paris and becomes kind of this advocate of transnational politics and, and, and a radical. I mean, he, if he didn't join the Communist Party, he was very close to it for many years. And, and so he, he embraced radical politics as a solution to what he saw as the racial injustices at home. But there's another side to Richard Wright And uh, I think that's worth considering. If people want to read that essay, it's in the journal Mid-America. This is the journal put out by the Society for the Study of Midwestern Literature. And I think it's in the 2016 issue.
1: I always like your point about um, insights about region in the memoirs and the narratives of particular people, but always not generalizing from those narratives because I think you, you tell that story of Wright. um I also think of you know uh, the, the case of Malcolm X as well who I, not much is written in fact and I, I try to point this out in my review not much is written in fact about what Malcolm X makes about his call it his regional experience in Lansing moving around Michigan moving around the Midwest as a boy um but he does make a great deal of uh of of the for, for instance he makes a he, he talks a, a, at length about and very vividly about um, the the suggestion that the police in Lansing um, um, assassinated his father and that the the fire department uh, in his his Midwestern town set fire to his house um, and what's so fascinating I mean what, one of the many fascinating things about that is um, is that he knew very well that, I mean, these the, 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 he wasn't in the Jim Crow South, obviously. He was in Michigan. Um, and that's, that's a dynamic that I wish more historians would explore, um, and I think they are exploring. That's why I'm so excited, uh, especially about the work you're sort of pulling together on this, John. Um, and, and another thing, and this is my last question for you, um, uh, relating to something we talked about last time, um, is the work, of, uh, the, the work you do for Senator John Thune, of South Dakota, in addition to your work as an academic. Um, so, so your work with Thun is, is regional in one clear sense, um, which you pointed out, which is that you really have to be aware if you're working in this area of the needs and wants of constituents in different districts, different counties, different towns. So your, your focus has to be deeply regional and about the very particular needs of people in particular places. But now the national political scene has changed so much and region is now so obviously important and the political rift mirrors the cultural one we've been discussing—that is, the rift between the Midwesterners and the so-called coastal elite. So I'm just wondering, to the you know, to the degree that you can or feel comfortable talking about it, what has changed about working in politics from, in your view, as a result of this, as a result of this shift, this shift in 2016? Well,
0: first of all, just one quick comment on the race question mm. that you brought up. Uh, one thing. Uh, I'd like to highlight for people is uh, Bill Green, uh, professor in Minnesota uh, at uh, Augsburg College, has a new book called Degrees of Freedom. And it's about race in the state of Minnesota, you know, going back to the 1850s. And it's really interesting because, you know, there are very few blacks in Minnesota, but there are some prominent court cases and there's some prominent. I mean, there, there are very few until the Great Migration mm-hmm. uh, brings more migrants to uh, the Twin Cities. But Bill Green has uncovered some really interesting stories um, related to court cases, et cetera. And uh, it's really worth a, a look if you want to get a good sense of um, what was happening in terms of race in the North. And this is obviously um, a growing field of studies. Tom grew. Uh, his books have increasingly focused on this. Um, I, one thing, I remember reading Tom Segrew's book about race in the North a few years ago. What, what struck me early on is there's a story of a, of an African-American woman who grew up in Minnesota. And, and she, I think, felt like she had a fairly positive experience Mm -hmm. there. And then for some reason she moved to Mississippi to go to a college or go to a church camp or something. And she was, uh, totally transformed and she couldn't believe this is how uh, people lived in another part of the country. And she was shocked at the treatment of people. And it really was a good example, a good window into regional distinction. Mm -hmm. So, um, That's, again, Thomas Segrou, who's been working on this for a long time and and doing a lot of great work on Detroit. Hmm. Um, Since we're talking about this, uh, University of California Press just issued a new book on Detroit since you're from Michigan, uh, Joe, and Detroit and race. And uh, it looks it looks to be very important and will shape the conversation. Hmm. Um, But back to politics. Uh, You know, politics, uh, I think we cannot understand American politics, American political history, unless we focus on region. I mean, I think we all got used to looking at the red and blue maps after the 2000 election, which was so close. And we all remember Tim Russert up there holding up the maps and all that. But these maps go back a long way. Uh, There's a great map in the New Republic uh, in the teens uh, mapping the voting distinctions between north and south you know in the years after the Civil War in the 50 or 60 years after the Civil War and of course then the South was all democratic and, and the Midwest was all Republican and there are very few deviations uh, from that in close elections. I mean if it was a wave election then there would be but uh, so unless we understand regions, Uh, And the parties that particular regions tend to uh, gravitate toward, you know, we're not we're not going to understand politics. And and in this last election, um, the big critical difference was that states in the Midwest, that the Clinton campaign and the and Democratic strategists and Democratic Party experts assumed would be with them. uh, Places like Michigan, places like um, Iowa, places like Wisconsin, which they assumed would go Democratic, uh, like they had in recent years for Barack Obama, and Bill Clinton, etc. All of a sudden, they flipped. That was the big distinction. That's why the race ended up the way it did. And Um, So the Midwest, figuring out these places in the Midwest, uh, figuring out why Michigan did that, why Wisconsin did that, this is the key to figuring out presidential politics and what's going to happen down the road. So again, this makes the point about place and region and understanding a locality, because You know, it's all Michigan and Wisconsin are battlegrounds now. So if you're going to succeed there, you need to understand uh, the landscape, the political landscape. And people had not been doing that. People had not been paying attention to uh, these places. You know, everyone is criticizing Hillary Clinton now because she didn't go to Wisconsin uh, for the last six months of the campaign. Um, And, you know, because she assumed that state. Uh, would be with her. So I do think there's a lot to uh, a lot to be learned about politics from focusing on regions. And then you also mentioned this added friction, this added friction of the interior versus the coasts, and this friction between, you know, uh, let's say people in Iowa versus people in New York. And it's a very real friction. And if you read my book that we've been talking about today, Warm Center, um, you'll see that this goes back a long ways. There was a lot of friction back then too. It, it's not a new problem, um, but I think it's a problem or a friction that has been underexamined and need to, needs to be explored more in a sophisticated way, not in a kind of a superficial, oh let's let's attack Manhattan uh, sort of way, but like just to figure out this this dynamic. Um, you know, Joe, we. We're very familiar with the uh, with the phrase cultural hegemony, uh, which is very prominent in intellectual circles, uh, derived from Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, the theorist, and has had a major influence on how people write about American history in the last thirty years. Well, this this question of hegemony, or how certain elites kind of define the culture, I mean, this is what is being criticized uh, by People in Iowa, uh, they think that too much of our culture is defined by um, major TV networks in Manhattan, by the by the New York Times, uh, by the Washington Post, uh, by all of this. And you know, I think anything we can do to create a little bit more um, decentralization in terms of uh, news reporting and um, you know the information that is generated for for citizens and voters to use. I think that's a good thing. Uh, Dean Becke, uh, the executive editor of the New York Times after the election made a big point about this. He said, you know, we are, we are, there is a certain amount of truth to this idea that there is a cocoon here in Manhattan that too many of us get into and we need to do more reporting um, from, from the center of the country, but you know, it, uh, it takes some work. Uh, I think we have some advantages in terms of the Internet now and uh, the way to generate local news and local stories and commentary. There are a lot of things we can do now that we couldn't 20 years ago. So hopefully that will begin to lessen this kind of dominance or this hegemony um, because it's it doesn't make our – it undermines our politics in a way, uh, our small d democratic politics, uh, because it puts too much, hand, too much power in the hands of a few people. We need it spread around. We need it decentralized more. And that way it'll be more of a pluralistic system.
1: John, thanks so much as always for coming on the podcast. I'm so looking forward to the release of your book, From Warm Center to Ragged Edge. Uh, and I hope to talk with you again soon. Thanks, Joe. That was John Lauck, author of From Warm Center to Ragged Edge The Erosion of Midwestern Literary and Historical Regionalism. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph the Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest, which is coming up in a week or so, brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country, or perhaps the ragged edge of the universe. And of course, the Hauenstein Center is itself... I set up for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year from the presidency, or for the presidency. I'm tiring of saying that. Um, to learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org. and follow GBSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.